Hi, I'm Mark Shanahan. I'm a theater artist associated with the White Heron Theater here in downtown Nantucket. Normally, you'd find us just off Broad Street at 5 North Water Street. But in this challenging year of 2020, theaters everywhere are momentarily closed. And so we figured, if you can't come to us, we would come to you. And with that in mind, we've made some good old-fashioned radio drama for you, based on the beloved book Nantucket Ghosts, 44 True Accounts by Blue Balliette. Today we're going to listen to an original audio play based on a story in the book, and then we'll be joined by Blue Balliette herself as we talk about Nantucket, island history, and the ghosts that walk our cobblestone streets. Without further ado, welcome to White Heron Radio Theater. Hello, this is Lynn Bolton, Artistic Director of the White Heron Theater on Nantucket. In the theater, we have a tradition. Whenever the stage goes dark between performances, we leave a single light burning in the house until the curtain can rise again. We call it a ghost light. And until we can all meet once more at White Heron, we're pleased to offer you something we like to call our Ghost Light Series, original Nantucket radio drama created especially for you our white heron audience. In the summer of 1927, I didn't even know Nantucket was a real place. I'd only heard of it in that schoolyard limerick. You know the one. But I'm getting ahead of myself. You'll need to understand a few things about me if I'm going to explain what happened on Orange Street and how it changed my views on life and death. See, I really should have been dead years ago. Back in 1918, I served in France. The day before the war was to end, I almost met my maker. But the bullet hit the fella next to me, and so a few days later they buried him in the cemetery Père Lachaise instead of me. It's not something I like to talk about. I was just lucky, I guess. After that, I developed a bit of a penchant for laughing at death. When I got home, I needed a job. On the boardwalk at Coney Island, I met a lady who offered to help me talk to my dead mother for a small price. I saw through her scam right away and sold my little expose to the New York Republic. The readers ate it up. Soon, I was writing about fraudulent mediums and phony psychics on a regular basis. I got really good at it, too. Ectoplasm, table tipping, spirit writing, mesmerism. You name it, I could explain it. It was a noble calling, and it took me places. And that's how I ended up on a ferry. See, there was a pair of sisters on Nantucket who claimed they could talk to the ghost of an old sailor who offered advice to the locals. Now, I couldn't let them get away with that, could I? The Tipping Table, from the story by Blue Balliette, adapted for White Heron Radio Theater by Mark Shanahan. First time crossing over? Pardon me? First time crossing over on the ferry to Nantucket? Uh, Beats seasick is all. Can't even stare at the horizon with all this fog. (laughs) Don't worry. The Nobska's a sturdy vessel. Brand new, too. We'll be on Nantucket soon. Home sweet home. Peter Benjamin. Uh, John Hibbert. Pleased to meet you. You live on the island? All my life. (laughs) Except for my time in the army, but that seems a lifetime ago now, doesn't it? It does indeed. You serve? 
I did. Now I can tell. It's in your eyes. You have that look like you've seen a few things, am I right? You know how it was. <laughs> you were there. Indeed. But we're the lucky ones. We came home. Where are you staying on island? The Ocean House Hotel on Broad Street, you know it? <laughs> One of our finest. Beautiful brick building built by Jared Coffin himself. Coffin? There's a name ought to scare the children. Oh, Nantucketers aren't easily scared. We're a sturdy lot. So I've read. Your little island was the whaling capital of the world at one time, wasn't it? Until the light bulb came along. <laughs> Ruined everything for us. <laughs> I come from a long line of whalers. That was that was the industry out here for generations. Now it's all tourists coming over by the boatload. No offense. We love our tourists. Oh, I'm not a tourist. I'm a writer. Oh, we have plenty of writers here on Nantucket. We've developed a real artist colony of sorts. That Benchley fella, for one. Well, I'm not quite of his caliber, I'm afraid. I'm here to do a story for a second-rate newspaper. I'm told you have a couple of young ladies out here who perform seances. Ah, the Morris girls. You'll find them on Orange Street. Go Thursdays. In my experience, Mr. Paddock is very chatty on Thursdays. Mr. Paddock? Their spirit friend, he's quite a character. He gave me a stock tip last week. Good one, too. Stock tip? Come on now. Oh, I see. You're not a believer. Mr. Hibbert, word to the wise. The island has a past which tends to linger. You do well to respect that while you're on Nantucket. Great, thanks. I'll try to keep that in mind. Ah, we're here. We are? Sure. Look over there. Can you see that little blinking light? That Brant Point lighthouse? Can't see anything through this fog. <laughs> well, just because you can't see something doesn't mean it isn't there. Now, does it? <laughs> Have a pleasant stay, Mr. Hibbert. Perhaps I'll see you around town. Nantucket was, well, how to describe it? A plump little comma of land 22 miles off the coast of Massachusetts. If you were looking for old-fashioned, Nantucket was the place for you. It was like the ferry was some kind of time machine that transported you from the Roaring Twenties back to the good old days of 18-something or other. There was a fair share of cars and electric lights, but otherwise the modern world had left this little place mostly untouched. It had a charm all its own. And the creakiest beds you ever slept in, especially at Jared Coffin's Ocean House Hotel. Next morning, I waited until what seemed a decent hour and hustled over the cobblestone streets to the other side of town to a handsome white clabbered house on Orange Street. Ugh, maybe I'd come all this way for nothing. But you never wanted to wire ahead. Never good to let them know you're coming. It was always best to catch them off guard and... Yes? John Hibbert, pleased to meet you. You're probably here to see my granddaughters. Uh, Want to speak to the spirit, no doubt. I'd come back tonight. Come back tonight? What was I supposed to do all day? Hang around the docks eating cups of chowder until... Oh, Mr. Hibbert! Mr. Hibbert! Please don't go. You are Mr. Hibbert, aren't you? Yes. See? I told you, Catherine. We're so terribly sorry about grandmother. You were right, Julia. Pay no attention to our grandmother, Mr. Hibbert. You're the Morris sisters? We are. I'm Catherine. And I'm Julia, the older one. She's only a year older. 
I'm 15. She's 16. Almost 17. Oh, we're so excited to meet you. You are the gentleman from the New York Republic, right? How did you know that? A ghost tell you? Oh, goodness no. Mr. Benjamin told us all about you this morning. You met him. On the ferry yesterday. Oh, yes, Mr. Benjamin. Nice fellow. Is it true you're going to write about us in the newspaper? I might. Will there be a picture of us? We'll have to have our picture to <laughs> Julia, this is so exciting. One step at a time. Will you come back this evening? We're having some family friends over after dinner, and we'd love you to join us. A party? In a way. Thursdays, Catherine and I invite visitors to come and speak with Mr. Paddock. He loves to give advice. Think of a question you want to ask him. Seven o'clock? That'll be fine. Oh, and how much is the entrance fee? Entrance fee? To attend? Oh, heavens, we don't charge anything. Just come by. (laughs) (laughs) What an act. I mean, don't get me wrong. They were two of the most instantly likable kids you'd ever want to meet. Free and easy, without a care in the world. I just... I couldn't stand them. They were charlatans under that sweet exterior, no question. They said they didn't charge money, but con artists always found a way to profit somehow. I knew I was being played, and I'd prove it. At 7 o'clock, I was right back on Orange Street. Oh, Mr. Hibbert, there you are. Catherine, he's here. Come on in. We were just listening to the phonograph in the parlor. Would you like some tea? Come in. Come in. We can introduce you to everyone. Don't be shy. There was a doctor from Boston, a salesman from New Bedford, an island store owner and his wife, the girl's grandmother, and a few others sporting nervous smiles. But the girls, oh, they were charming. The very picture of a pair of perfect hostesses. Well, you see, grandmother lives here most of the year now. We stay with her during the summer. We were originally from Irvington on the Hudson. Do you know where that is? Grandmother is very strict. When we first get here each summer, she makes us wait three whole days to acclimate to the sea air before we're ever allowed to swim. Can you believe that? Oh, have you been to the beach down at the jetties? You'll have to come with us. But only in the mornings. Grandmother says the afternoons at Jetties Beach must be reserved for all the mainland tourists. Not that Julia and I go in for any of her snooty thinking. Nantucket is really a place for everyone to come together. Even ghosts? That's right. Even ghosts! (laughs) (laughs) Well now, shall we get started? And that's when things began to get interesting. Everyone please take a chair while Catherine and I sit here at our little tea table. It's an old birdcage table, we've been told. But we just use it for serving tea now, and for talking with Mr. Paddock. We'll need another person with us to make a triangle. Mr. Hibbert, would you? No, no, I'll just sit over here in the corner and observe. Leave him alone, Julia. A reporter never wants to be the story, does he? Dr. Burke, would you be so kind? Now, usually a medium will turn the lights down low, the better to disguise the trick. But these girls left the lights on. Everything was in full view. It's really rather simple. Grandmother taught us how. Three of us sit here at our little three-legged table and lightly place our fingertips on top. We all concentrate and invite the spirit in. Then we ask him questions, and the table will tilt on its shortest leg, and Mr. Paddock will answer us with a knocking sound, if he joins us. Are we ready? This was always my favorite part of the whole shebang, the moment things got underway. Shh. Shh. 
Is there a spirit here among us? Whenever an act like this begins, there's a palpable sense of expectation. Please, Mr. Paddock, are you here? Tap once for yes. And what? Tap twice for no? We're here for you, Mr. Paddock. Huh. The electric bulbs flickered. Nice touch. Please, Mr. Paddock. We want to hear from you. We waited. This was what I like to call the period of investment. You get your audience to wait long enough so they're dying for something, anything to happen. And then, just when you can't take it anymore... (gasps) Oh, good! You are here! The table had tipped on its slightly shorter leg. Absolutely, it did. But you have to understand, table tipping is very easy to cheat at. I wasn't immediately impressed. We're so happy to hear from you, Mr. Paddock. Once for yes, twice for no. Are you well tonight? The table had knocked pretty forcibly, like someone had pounded a fist on it. I couldn't see anyone exerting extra pressure. No wires, no fishing line. I could see all their feet. It was... It was a good act. All right, now, we have a very pressing question to start with, Mr. Paddock. Will any boys ask me and Julia to the Yacht Club dance this summer? (laughs) Oh, thank goodness! Now, Mr. Paddock, our guests have written some questions. You can spell out the answers. Wrap once for the letter A, twice for B, and so forth, until we have it all figured out. Oh, Lord, at that rate, we'd be sitting there till dawn. Now then, Mr. Nickerson would like to know if he and his wife are expecting a boy or a girl. Apparently, the Nickersons were expecting a boy, and they were to name him Andrew. The doctor from New Bedford was advised not to visit his sister in St. Louis this Christmas, and the fisherman was informed the upcoming scallop season would be profitable. It went on like this for an hour. Mr. Paddock liked to talk. I'll give him that. And some of his statements were pretty strange. He says he doesn't care for the weeping stone. Whatever could he mean by that, Catherine? I know, Julia. Mr. Paddock, do you mean the moist stone next to the chimney? It's always wet. Of course. I don't like it either. Any more questions? The little three-legged table tapped away all night like some kind of possessed Marconi machine. It was the nuttiest thing I'd ever seen. Mr. Paddock, we have a guest here tonight from New York. A Mr. John Hibbert. He's going to write a story about you. Would you like to meet him? That's when it happened. The room grew extremely cold. Did you feel that, Catherine? The table kept tapping out its answer. It's so cold in here. I can see my breath. It happened without a warning. A terrible chill moved right through my body. It gripped me and wouldn't let go. A deep, freezing, teeth-chattering cold which kept me paralyzed. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't speak. I couldn't even hear anything just a pounding in my ears. It was the tapping. Mr. Hibbert? Mr. Hibbert, are you all right? Help me, Catherine. What? Yes, I'm fine. Well, what did Paddock say? Oh, oh, I'm, I'm very sorry, Mr. Hibbert. Mr. Paddock says I don't like him. I wish he'd go away. Everyone, my granddaughters are finished with the demonstration for this evening. Mr. Paddock has left us. 
I'm sure you can sense it too. And so now we say good night. Mr. Hibbert! I can see myself out. I I hope you're not upset, Mr. Hibbert. I don't know what you're up to, Miss Morris, but you and your sister certainly know how to entertain your guests. Good night. If Prohibition was still the law back on the mainland, somebody forgot to tell Nantucket. Commercial Wharf was wild with speakeasies and dance halls in the back of restaurants. The liquor was flowing freely, and just now, I needed a whiskey or two. Or ten. Ah, Mr. Hibbert. Nice to see you again. Pull up a chair. Ah, Mr. Benjamin. Didn't mean to spill. Excuse me. I'm at my limit, I guess. (laughs) Getting into the island spirit, I see. Please, no more talk about spirits tonight. Ah, you've met Mr. Paddock, then? No. I've met two young ladies who put on quite a show. (laughs) And what if they're telling the truth? They're not. Or... Maybe they believe they are, and the grandmother's behind the whole thing. I don't know. Well, I do. (laughs) I know a few things about Paddock. Even the girls don't. You see, my grandfather knew Paddock. What? Alec Paddock was a sailor. Lived in that house in 1823. Died there, too. My grandfather was the one who found him. Paddock had hung himself in that front parlor, right where that little tea table sits now. I never mentioned this to the girls, and yet I was present the first time he tapped out his full name. Now, you tell me how that's possible. Uh, Someone probably told them about him. There's no reason they would have ever heard of him. The family's only owned the place a few years, but, but what happened in that house happened a long time ago, and very few people would even know about Alec Paddock all these years later. But I think Paddock seems happy now. In death, he's, he's overcome whatever pain he kept bottled up in life. Surely you, of all people, can sympathize. What's that supposed to mean? I don't want to speak out of turn, Mr. Hibbert, but I think you're carrying something fairly heavy. You don't have to talk about it, but I, I'm happy to listen, if you like. Get it off your chest. Yeah, two old soldiers telling stories, huh? All right. The day before armistice, I was on watch in the trenches. It was quiet until the firing started. A friend of mine, just a kid really, 21 years out of Houston, Texas, he threw himself in front of the bullet that was meant for me. I held on to him. He was scared. It wasn't a peaceful death. I watched the life drain from his eyes until he was gone. And in that moment, I felt certain of one thing in this life. When our time's up, it's up. This is all we get. There's nothing on the other side, no matter what anyone says. I've made a career out of proving that. Or, maybe you'd like to prove just the opposite. Find out you're wrong. I think you want to know your friend who died in your arms is safe now. That he's all right. He's found peace. Just like Mr. Paddock has. Benjamin, I wish I believed. I do. It must be nice. But there's no such thing as ghosts. Oh, Mr. Hibbert. You may not believe in ghosts, but I do believe you're a haunted man. (laughs) Good night, sir. I hope you find some peace, too. Back at the hotel, there was a note waiting for me at the front desk. 
Dear Mr. Hibbert, my sister Julia and I were so terribly embarrassed by Mr. Paddock's behavior towards you tonight. You were a guest in our home. He had no right to speak to you so rudely. Ordinarily, Mr. Paddock is so very friendly. We made contact with him again shortly after you left, and he told us you had come to Nantucket to write a rather nasty story about us. We told him that we do not believe you would ever do such a thing. He has agreed to apologize. If you please, come visit us tomorrow evening. Mr. Paddock asks that you come at 7 o'clock sharp. Our grandmother will be out for dinner. You can speak with Mr. Paddock privately. Please keep this between us, as Grandmother wouldn't approve. Sincerely, Catherine Morris. All right, Paddock. Let's talk. I spent the next day in my room, staring at the ceiling and nursing my hangover. By evening, a nor'easter was brewing. I hurried over to Orange Street, the wind licking my heels. The door had been left unlocked. The house was empty. A single light flickered in the hallway. The phonograph was playing in the parlor. I lifted the needle and walked over to the little tea table. I put my fingers on it and waited. All right, Paddock. I'm here. Where are you? Come on. Say something if you're real. Give me a sign. (laughs) Julia! Julia! I'm coming. Where are you? Oh, Mr. Hibbert, upstairs! Quickly, quickly! The floor just gave way! Help me, Mr. Hibbert! She's she's slipping! Please! Careful now. Give me your hand, Julia. You're all right now. You're all right. Let's get you downstairs. You're lucky you didn't break your neck, Julia. What were you doing up there? Oh, we're such fools. Mr. Paddock once told us there was some kind of hidden treasure in the attic. But he warned us not to go looking for it. The attic is off limits. But whenever Grandmother goes out, we climb up there and hunt about... Please don't put this in your story. Girls, I'm not going to write any story. I'm sorry. I came here determined to write that you were a pair of liars, but I think you really believe in Paddock. Why should I take that away from you? Of course we believe in him. Why can't you? Because something terrible happened to me a long time ago, and I just can't seem to put it behind me. I wish... I wish I knew there was something more after this life. I wish I believed the way that you do. Mr. Hibbert, if that's what you came to Nantucket looking for, we can help. I'm sure Mr. Paddock agrees. He's sitting here with us right now. Can't you feel him? No, I can't. Come, sit with me and Catherine over here. And place your fingertips on the tea table. Mr. Paddock, John Hibbert saved Julia's life tonight. We owe him a little peace of mind. Will you help us? The table. It's lifted off the ground for a moment. How are you doing this? Oh, hush now. 
Mr. Hibbert, think of a question. Now write down the answer and put it in your pocket. Something only you would know. Something which, if Mr. Paddock could answer correctly, would make you believe. All right. I have my question. Fingers back on the table. Go ahead, Mr. Paddock. The letters came gently, the table calmly tapping out an answer. After the first letter, tears came to my eyes. How could he have known? How could anybody have known? Hmm. He's left. I don't feel him anymore. Oh, he'll probably come back tomorrow. At least we have our answer, but it's all gobbledygook to me. Does it make any sense to you, Catherine? I think this is a French word, isn't it? P-E-R-E-L-A-C-H-A-I-S-E. Père Lachaise. He spelled Père Lachaise. Exactly as I wrote on this slip of paper, I asked him where my friend was buried. He answered. There's no way he could have known. Well, now there, then. You're smiling. Are you happy? Yes. I think I am. I am. Thank you, ladies. Well, maybe you could write about that, if you like. How you came to believe. At our little house on Orange Street in Nantucket. Oh, goodness. Mr. Hibbert, I think you should get going before Grandmother comes home. We have a lot of explaining to do about the ceiling and the attic. Thank you for coming by. Do stay in touch, Mr. Hibbert, will you? Nantucket is a hard place to get to, but a difficult place to leave. I left the island a bit lighter than when I arrived. I stopped writing about frauds and fakes, much to my editor's displeasure. Instead, I started writing about things that inspired me, that gave me hope. Those stories didn't sell as well, but I liked them better. I got married, had kids, even a grandkid now. And last year, I brought her to Nantucket. We stood outside the house on Orange Street. The Morris family was long gone. The new owner was having a yard sale. She told me the house had been renovated recently and they'd found a box of old jewelry in the walls of the attic. And there was the little tea table, sitting on its side in the driveway, tipped over. One of the legs was missing, the short one. I bought the table for a song and I repaired it. I sit at it every morning when I have breakfast and I always smile because I no longer laugh at death. I'm not afraid because I know there is something on the other side. Isn't that right? Thank you, Mr. Paddock. The Tipping Table, adapted by Mark Shanahan from the story by Blue Belliette, originally published in Nantucket Ghosts, 44 True Accounts, with Jeremy Shamos as John Hibbert, Michael Kopko as Mr. Benjamin, Nina Hellman as Julia, and Mary Seidel as Catherine. The Tipping Table was directed by Mark Shanahan with original music, sound design, and audio production by John Gramada. 
Nantucket Ghosts, 44 True Accounts, is published by Down East Books and available at Mitchell's Book Corner, Nantucket Bookworks, and available for download on iBooks. Old and Young, from Blue Balliot's Nantucket Ghosts, 44 True Accounts. Everything was wrong with this house. The basement flooded every other week, the heat went out, the toilet backed up, the refrigerator broke, and the kitchen was a Betty Furness aqua in pink that almost made you ill. But it was cheap. My friend Cyrus Hall and I were in our 20s. We were both new to the island, and neither of us had any money. When we located the house, we thought we'd found the perfect winter rental. A seedy living situation on wild Nantucket was a definite badge of distinction. It was the fall of 1972 when we moved in. On our second day there, I was coming home from work at 5.30 and saw an old man with a gray coat and a gray fedora hat. He was standing by the front door, and he seemed to be fumbling with his key. I thought to myself, oh, great. Some old geezer lives here, too, when we probably won't be able to have parties. By the time I parked the car... He was gone. I assumed he'd gone into the house. The building had been divided into three apartments. I'd met the kids living in the other two and assumed that this guy belonged to a fourth living area tucked away someplace in the back. I didn't give it much thought. Cyrus came into the kitchen one morning with a funny look on his face. He told me that he'd woken up in the night to see a man with a hat on standing at the foot of his bed. Startled, he'd sat up straight, and the image had vanished. One night, I also woke up and saw a shape in the darkness. My eyesight isn't terribly good, and I assumed that it was my coat hanging on the back of the door. I could see the shoulders and the general shape of a person, but I really thought it was just clothing on a hanger or maybe a hat thrown over the hook. I was groggy, so I rolled over and went back to sleep. In the morning, I found that there was nothing hanging on my door. I remember that green feeling in the pit of my stomach when I realized that I didn't know what I'd seen, but I knew I'd seen it. I noticed the man a couple of other times, always when I was getting home at dusk. I only saw him from my car. He was always gone by the time I got to the front sidewalk. I don't remember correlating the sight of the old man at the door with the figures we had seen inside at night. One morning, I was talking with one of the girls who were renting the lower apartment. And I thought of the old guy and asked if she knew anything about him. And she, she gave me a funny look and said that there was no older person living in the house. My girlfriend Jody moved in during the winter. She didn't have a job and was alone during the day while Cyrus and I were at work. She didn't know a soul on Nantucket, but she repeatedly heard someone calling her name. She went to the door again and again, puzzled, but there was never anyone there. In early spring, a friend of Jody's came for the weekend, and Cyrus, thoughtful guy that he was, gave the guest his room and planned to sleep on the living room couch. He was sitting up, 
reading the paper after the rest of us had gone to bed. And something caught his eye in the corner of the room. Looking up, he saw the faint silhouette of a man with a hat. It was more an outline than a solid shape and seemed to be moving slowly towards him. He said he really couldn't believe what was going on and he just sat there, more curious than afraid. And then something horrible happened. He felt this shape go into him, or so he said, and he felt himself drowning in a wash of ugly, angry, violent emotion. He had a strong urge to go into my room and attack Jody and me, to do something physically harmful to us. <laughs> it sounds laughable as I'm telling you this, but I guess it was pretty terrifying at the time. He jumped up from the sofa and ran into the bathroom and he started splashing cold water on his face and neck. When he looked up in the mirror, holding a towel, he said that a hideous face was coming out of his. He claimed that something horrendous inside his body was looking out at him. Now, we'd had a humdrum dull evening and we made some hallucinogenic-like rice for dinner. Cyrus was straight. He didn't do drugs. The most any of us did was drink wine and beer. Not knowing what else to do, he turned on all the lights, he went to the kitchen, made coffee. He said he sat at the table and drank a full pot and smoked cigarette after cigarette. By dawn, he felt this presence leave him. It was there one moment an outrageous urge inside him, and then it was gone. He knew the moment it left, and he was okay. Exhausted, he lay down on the couch and slept most of the day. That afternoon, he was in the kitchen telling Jody and her friend about what had happened the night before. I was in the bedroom taking a nap. I woke up to feel a tremendous pressure on my neck and on the back of my head. <laughs> I had to struggle to get myself out from under it. It was as if someone had put a, a sofa cushion on top of me and was leaning on it with all their weight. And when I got myself to a sitting position, I jumped out of bed and I, I ran into the kitchen. And that's when I heard about Cyrus's experience of the previous night. <laughs> By then, all of us had the spooks, and Cyrus and Jody and I couldn't wait to move out of the place. Nothing much happened for a few weeks, and then, shortly before the lease was up, we were sitting around the kitchen with some friends, and someone suggested we have a seance. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those, yeah, great idea party situations. We had a Ouija board, and four of us sat down around a table. None of us had ever used one of those things before. We did seem to contact something. The pointer spelled out that the spirit was that of a girl who had died in an explosion. Now that was scary, and uh, we quit right there. <laughs> we had at least two bottles of wine that night, and by the next morning the whole business looked pretty silly. <laughs> In 1974, 
I met a couple working for the Historical Association who mentioned that they had just left a miserably uncomfortable rental. She told me it was on the same street as the apartment Cyrus and I had lived in two years before. It turned out to be the same place. I asked her if she'd noticed anything odd. She said she hadn't, really, except that the house just felt bad, and that she'd repeatedly seen a man in a gray coat and a fedora hat outside their back door. She could see him through the kitchen window. Every time she walked over to the door and opened it, no one was there. Years later, I was doing research in the Historical Association's Peter Folger Library, and I came across a box of old Inquirer and Mirror newspapers. I was browsing through them, curious to see the hot items of the 1950s and 1960s, and a, a small article caught my eye. You can look it up. The article stated that a young Nantucket woman had been killed in an explosion somewhere down south. It then went on to say that she'd grown up in the house that Cyrus and I had rented in 1972. Old and Young by Blue Balliette from Nantucket Ghosts, 44 True Accounts, read by Mark Shanahan, with original music, sound design, and audio production by John Gramada. And we're back here at the White Heron Theater. I'm Mark Shanahan. I am the adapter of The Tipping Table, and I'm joined with Blue Balliette, whose book, Nantucket Ghost 44 True Accounts, uh, was the inspiration uh, for the audio play you just heard. Hey, Blue. Hi. I'm just so pleased that you're doing this and happy to be here with you. I'm excited. And we are so grateful that we have your uh, material as the source material. It was fun to hear that. Um, I, I, do you remember that particular story, which in your book is called The Birdcage Table, I know. Yeah. And do you remember interviewing, because in the book it's um, an older woman telling you about her, her childhood and her right. time with her oh, sister, I, right? Abso- I remember every interview I ever did. I yeah. Bet. I bet. <laughs> um, was and- she forthcoming in the telling of that tale? Uh, you know, I, I think now um, ghosts are kind of a part of the cultural fabric of Nantucket. Right. But at the time I was collecting these stories, they were not. Right. And most of the people I interviewed were A, older, right. and B, had a dramatic experience that was very real to them. And they were somewhat reluctant to share what they had agreed to tell me. So I I felt like I I had to move very carefully and often I had to change their name. Of course. uh, Because they were afraid of being made fun of or... Um, you know, they were afraid it might affect their island business or something. Of course. Lou, let's talk about it. When did you get the idea to do this book? Um, I was in college. Mm-hmm. I was a student at Brown. Um, I know you went to Brown, too, yeah. <laughs> a few years after I did, <laughs> but you, we both went to Brown. And um, I was out here for a weekend and had a weird experience. I saw something really strange. You did. I did. And yeah. I was with somebody else, so the two of us saw something strange. Where was it on the island? Can I ask you? Mm. You don't want to tell me. It's okay. I can see. Look, you got it's, reticent. Yeah. You're just like one of your subjects. I it's know. Clammed up. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's it, it, the person who saw it with me is now a writer living in New York. Gotcha. 
Um, but she and I were both um, college students, and we saw the same thing. Right. And I was so, um, you, when, when that happens to you and you see what you think is a solid person and then you realize they're not, um, I, I didn't have anywhere to put that experience, and I didn't even tell anyone for a good six months. Right. And then when I graduated from Brown, um, I had sort of, you know, filed that experience away in my mind. I, I wanted to come back to Nantucket. I was crazy about Nantucket. I had grown up in New York City, and Nantucket just felt like heavenly, mm -hmm. heavenly place to me, mm -hmm. so soulful and filled with magic. Um, so I moved back to Nantucket in 78, um, and um, of course didn't forget that experience. And uh, I began hearing other people telling stories. Actually heard some of my first stories in the Brotherhood. People working there said, oh, you know, this, have you heard what happened to so-and-so? This crazy thing happened. He was working down the street right. and blah, blah. And I started to think, wow. Um, What's happening out here? <laughs> I, I came from a family where no one talked about paranormal goings-on. Right. Um, and then I was lucky enough to have dinner, to be at a dinner with Nathaniel Benchley, who mm. was Robert Benchley's son, and um, Peter Benchley, you know, the Jaws author, right. his dad. And we started talking about ghosts. And I told him what had happened with me, and... Uh, he was very interested. And uh, at the time, I was just in my um, early 20s, but he said, well, he said, I'm, I'm thinking you might be the person to do this. He said, I'm not going to do this. He said, somebody needs to record these stories on Nantucket because there are many of them. And the police know about them. All of us who've been out here for a while have heard these stories, but no one has written them down. No one has recorded them. And um, I think you should give it a try. And I said, okay. So he got me started. He called three people who would not have spoken with me otherwise mm -hmm. and sort of introduced me. And um, it took me a full year to get those three people to talk. Wow. It was amazing. People were very concerned that the material would go somewhere they didn't want it to go or that I would not... Um, really tell the story the way it was told to me right. that um, but uh, anyway we we moved on from there and the people who I interviewed liked what I did and at the end of the interview they said um you know you might want to talk with so it was just word of mouth it took about five years to get the first collection of stories right. collected it took a long time to get people to speak. The book is now, and let, let me, for people who, who um, haven't come across it yet, uh, it's a collection of accounts and interviews that you did with people from around the it's island. It's really oral right? history. Exactly. It's oral history that sort of keeps, and also delves into names and places from the, the island's past that uh, really do, and does keep it alive as these stories get told again. Um, when, when did this book come out, the first uh, edition of it? 84. In that summer, I remember getting it in my hands really um, 
eagerly and all of our friends on the island had it in their hands and I stayed up late and we there were all dog-eared copies at the beach we read them and one of our friends Elaine <laughs> had was in one of the houses we think that was in the book so we were constantly thinking about it and over the years I've loved this book I've given it to people I've had it in oh. my house at all times you know and it's something that we hold on to and when we first came up with this idea of White Heron to, to turn to your work and tell ghost stories and write um, audio plays based on them. Um, many of the uh, accounts in your book are, are snippets, are experiences, are things that are unexplained, and we wanted to give it some shape. And I remember, and I, and I feel strange still about it, I called you and I said, what do we do about this? These, we have to honor these people's stories. This is something that right. they actually gave you. So, for instance, in the tipping table, there's that wonderful little mention at the end of this old lady, this old woman's um, uh, remembrances about the man who came to discredit her and the right. mention of Perlisha Cemetery. And it's just a few lines at the end, and I figured that would be a way in while still honoring their... I just um, love what you did, oh, thanks, I have to say. I, I mean, I just love it. It was the most marvelous sort of combination of a frame, a setting, and a fleshing out to allow the story to come to life. One of the fun things about I love that, it. I'm glad you did because I was, you know, when I sent when I hit send and, and sent it over to you, I thought, oh man, I hope Lou likes it. But, oh, I loved it. I loved it. Yep. One of the things I loved about her oral history was talking about what it was like to be in Nantucket in the 1920s. And as I researched that, I found people were saying, even back in the 20s, boy, this place is old fashioned, and I, you know, it's really a part of history because Nantucket was preserved right. in amber, really, for after the whaling era, you know. And so there was this great sense of of looking back at the 1920s in your in your account in the book of what it was like to go down to the beach of what it was like to socialize in that era and your book actually has voices from so many different eras of Nantucket's history and you must have really had to find different ways in to talk to all of these people it was so much well I I began to realize once I was collecting this material and um, I had a little I I really wanted to approach it as oral history and stay out of the picture as much as I could just to be a portal for people's voices and experiences. But I realized, um, I remember thinking many times, I couldn't even use a tape recorder. And I do have a really good memory, and I'm very good at taking notes. And I had to take notes in front of people to do this, Mm -hmm. because I tried bringing a tape recorder to a couple of interviews, and people wouldn't speak. They said, Mm -hmm. no, I don't want to be recorded. So I realized, oh my gosh. But as I was doing it, I remember (laughs) thinking, it's such a pity I can't film these people's faces as they're telling me about this experience that makes them feel so vulnerable and that is such a bizarre experience within their own, the setting of their own lives. Did it, you, it was such a privilege to be there and hear those stories. Yeah. Did you ever do the interviews on site at a house that something had happened at? Or did people say, I'd rather not go there if I'm going to talk about this? Both things. Mm. I had some people who said, no, I can't tell you the story in the house. Uh, I don't want the house to to hear me. (laughs) And and the person would always laugh, but, you know, generally say, "Uh, you know, let's, can I meet you over at the Historical Association Library or the (laughs) Registry of Deeds where I was working? Um, That's where I heard the story about the 1800 house was in the corner of the Registry of Deeds. I mean, uh, there were people who said, no, we absolutely can't talk in the house. Then there were some other people who invited me over to their house, and I got to see the house, and they said, this is what happened, and generally they were, um, they knew something, some some of these houses had um, sort of multiple um, records of 
the same kind of thing happening. Right. <laughs> and I'm still hearing that from people. This is fascinating to me because these stories were recorded so long ago. Right. And I am still running into people who say, oh, my gosh, my aunt saw a little girl in the graveyard in the 1950s. And then she read your book, and she almost fainted because it was the same thing that had happened yep. to her. And I said, really? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's fascinating. It's still The fabric of these stories is still all around me in well, some it's a, funny way. a funny thing because you are now the repository. People want to tell you good I'm stories, safe. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had to tell you. I, I, you walked in here and I was like, I wonder if I should tell her what happened to me that time. Yeah. I got, and then I figured, this poor woman has heard so many people's No, ghosts. I'm <laughs> always so interested. I always stop dead. People pull over to the side of the road. That happened to me the other day. And somebody <laughs> said, I've got to tell you what happened. I said, great, tell me. Oh, man. Uh, well, you know, anybody who spent time on this island knows that... Uh, uh, somewhere around closing at the Brotherhood is always a good time to start telling a ghost story. So it seems like everybody yeah. has one also. Like everybody's right. got a ghost story. Right. What do you think, though, it is about Nantucket that has made it such an, an environment where people feel really connected, not only to um, a kind of spectral history and all that, but to the idea that it's that they want to pass down these ghost stories, that they want to pass down or participate in the history. Why is Nantucket so filled with ghosts? Yeah, I mean, there's something so ephemeral about Nantucket that so many of us have fallen in love with and yeah. and never really let go up once we see it. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it's a very difficult um, thing to define, but there is something about this place that holds on to human experience. Right. And I used to think it was just the old houses. I mean, I think it is largely these very old wooden houses that are filled with, they're kind of seasoned with people's lives and people's traumas and dramas and excitements and they're sort of rich with human emotion but there's something about this place that allows those of us who are in the present to access the past the past really doesn't feel completely past here Um, and almost everybody who has spent time here will agree with that and um, I have to say too I heard many many stories that I didn't record because they weren't they were either too similar to another story mm-hmm. I had heard, and I didn't know how to put the collection together with a sort of a repeat of the same experience. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, there were just snippets of things. I mean, for instance, there was something that was causing pots and pans to fly around and all kinds of accidents in the Jared Coffin House kitchen for years. Mm-hmm. The cook talked to me and said, oh, my God, yeah. He said, it's a nightmare. You know, a lot of us have run into this. I heard stuff about the Brotherhood. But I, I, it wasn't enough to write a whole chapter on. Right. So it, but it did show me that once I became um, a safe person to share these stories with, it, I, I feel so privileged because I got to look at Nantucket through a completely different human lens. Yeah. I got to kind of peek at the island through, I don't even know what I was looking at it through, but the lens of the of experiences that pull together the present and the past. Well, clearly you were tapped on the shoulder to be the one to do it, though, because in doing so, I think you, you know, I, I can tell you as someone who read the book that everyone after reading the book sits down and tells their story at a dinner table, and it always stops everyone dead. All you have to do is, as you mentioned yeah. to me, is say, I've got one. That and everyone fascinates listens, me. Right? Even if 
there's been conversation before the story where someone said, oh, come on, you know, I, I never, that stuff is just ridiculous. The minute somebody starts to share an experience, it doesn't matter who they are, the room is dead silent. So there is a side to people right. that knows this is worth listening to. Plus, I have to say, I wrote my per- first, um, I've, I've written seven um, books of fiction after right. the ghost books. And the most recent one is um, called Out of the Wild Night, and it's set here, and the characters are mostly not alive. I know. I've read it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, Blue, we're awfully grateful not only for your book, but for your letting us take inspiration from it to create the White Hearn uh, Radio Theater Ghost Light Series. It's been such a great joy to work on, on this with you. Oh, I can't tell you. It's been such a joy for me to see these stories getting a breath of fresh air and to have them being told on the air. That's where they belong. Ghost stories should be told. We love it. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. This programming was made possible by the generous contributions of our loyal supporters and patrons like you. You are the makers of great theater on Nantucket, and we thank you. For more information about White Heron Theater and our company, including ways to support programs like this one, please visit us at whiteherontheater.org or give us a call at 508-228-2156. We're saving your seat. Yeah.